So the law of attraction and synchronicity led you here. And this being a free will universe, I invite you to accept these words of the I am presence as your own. For it is your intention that invokes the law. And so what I know, father, mother, life, my life, my constant support, my nurturer, my highest inspiration, perfect fulfillment of every need. I celebrate that we have gathered here today in love to be light. I celebrate that in this space, in this place, in this time, in this moment, that there is truth that is being more fully and richly known. That there is an impersonalness, a vulnerability that comes from being immersed in that sense of love, that nurturing, that caring. In the message that reminds us of the truth of who we are. In the community that pulls us together from near and far. That says, Father, Mother, life within. I am that I am. Thou art love. And so in knowing this, I celebrate that we are co-creating a field that is being through us, as us. I celebrate that our very DNA, our every cell contains an intelligence that operates upon a pattern, upon the word. The word of power, of love and an intelligence that is through us, celebrating that our very DNA is connected into this love lattice that extends throughout the universe and beyond, recognizing that the power of my word activates the law, activates love, knowing that as royalty here, incarnated in training to be a human angel, I celebrate that each and every one of us are being more fully immersed and inspired and expanded and extending into love so that we might know what it is to have this experience of learning how to align with love. For there is nothing physical that we take with us when we're done. There is no status in the world that we carry upon our soul when we finish this chapter. There is simply the question of, how is it learning how to align with love? And so I know that each of us are deepening in that understanding, are deepening in that experience, and that we are beholding the love that is. And so with a sense of gratitude, I recognize, beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. And I invite you to join with me in claiming this for yourself by saying, and so it is. Well, you are in for a treat today. It is my pleasure to introduce the speaker of the day, Mandy Trapp. Mandy has worked in the health and wellness industry for 15 years before launching her own meditation company in 2012. Lifestyle Meditation was founded as an education-based, socially conscious company that believes in making stress management and spiritual growth easy and accessible for everyone. As a mother of three and wife to a successful entrepreneur, Mandy understands the demands of juggling a busy life. Although she entered motherhood with a post-secondary education and a full schedule as a personal trainer at a top training studio in Edmonton, it wasn't until she began her studies at Chopra University in San Diego, California, that she truly began to understand the importance of a daily meditation practice. In 2008, she graduated from Chopra University with their top distinction of Vedic master educator and has woven her Chopra education with her athletic training education, various yoga certifications, and several trips to India and Nepal, where she has founded the India-Nepal Yoga Project. 
a nonprofit organization that empowers healing in those affected by the devastating effects of human trafficking. Mandy believes that while suffering may be a part of the human experience, it is possible to transcend suffering through deeper connection to the personal and collective spirit. When we wake up to the truth of who we really are, we begin to live the journey aligned with our soul's deepest desire. Please join me in welcoming Mandy Trapp. The ones that aren't outside right now enjoying the sunlight? Maybe. Do I feel a little guilty that you're here? No, I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for coming today and spending your time. And time really is a precious, precious thing for all of us these days. And I just said that without crying. I cried through that on the first service. Because <laughs> I just had a really good friend that was diagnosed with cancer two days ago. And it's in that moment that everything, see, now I'm going to cry about that, that all of your priorities start to shift, right? And I'm watching for him what is shifting in his life where um, he had probably one of the most, um, should I call it, vivacious and um, eccentric lifestyles, you know, here and there, and I travel here and I have houses here and I do this for this person and this person. And within 24 hours, I watched him shift into pullback and to pull back and really start to say, what is the most important thing in this moment? And it's, it's me, it's ourselves. And we might say, no, it's my family, and it's being there as a father for my kids or as a mother for my children. But we have to take it back even further than that because we can't serve and we can't help them if we don't serve and help ourselves. So that um, is really what I'm here to talk to all of you about today. And I wore my fancy shirt that is the theme for today. It says, this is yoga. You can actually get these at Lululemon right now. So that's their whole new brand or rebranding launch. And I'm very grateful that they've asked me to be a brand ambassador for the next couple of years as they're trying to, and thank God they have really good leverage, is to share with the world not what yoga isn't, but really what it is. What are the possibilities and all of that? And if I was to ask you, as I asked everybody in the first service, who in this room would consider themselves a yogi? What do you think? Raise your hand. Who says, yeah, I'm a yogi? Beautiful. So just a small handful of you. So I'm here to prove you delightfully wrong today. <laughs> that every single one of us in this room, by the classical definition of yoga, is a yogi. And if you ask most people, I'm going to guess those of you that didn't raise your hands, you would say, I'm not a yogi, because if you ask most people, they say, well, a yogi is somebody who does all these weird positions with your body, and I breathe, and I'm a vegetarian, and you know, pray to Hare Krishna, or whatever it is that we think that yogis do. Probably one of the most important things that I've ever learned, and I continue to learn every single day, is the true meaning of yoga. And so the classical definition of yoga is to yoke together or to bring together into union. And what is it that we're bringing into union? Well, it's all of the dimensions of who we are. So we have a physical body, right? You can touch your body, right? It's the bones, the muscles, the tissues. It's also all the organs that we can't see. So we all have one of those, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So we bring the physical body together with the mental body in the mental body, this is your mind. So that makes up your thoughts, every thought that we have. This also makes up your beliefs and your discriminations. I like that. No, I don't like that. I like him. No, I don't like him or her. 
And your mind also holds all of your emotions. Right? So all of the guilt that we have, this is a condition of the mind. Sometimes the shame that we have is a condition of the mind. Sometimes even the joy that we experience or the excitement that we're experiencing is a part of your mind. And so even the thing about the mind is that we tend to think that it's centralized to the brain. And usually when I ask adults, where is your mind, they know that it's a trick question so nobody raises their hand. <laughs> but if I ask kids, where is your mind, most of them say, it's right here, it's in my brain. But what science knows now is that your mind is not contained and centralized to your brain. In fact, the mind is in every single cell of your body. If it's the opportunity to think and to decide if you like something or don't like something in your emotions, then we can even feel this in the cells right here in the lining of our gut. Right? When you step into a place like this, what tends to happen is that all the cells in the gut say, I like that, and I relax. Or you step into, let's say, an emergency room at a hospital, and all of a sudden that gut goes, I don't like that. And not to get too off track, but there's a whole lot of really cool stories that are coming out nowadays about people that have had organ transplants. That, that anybody in here, has anybody received somebody else's parts? Right? And they start to have dreams or they start to have aversions towards certain things or particular thoughts or beliefs that they didn't ever have before. And now what we're starting to find is it's because in every single cell of that organ is a memory and it's a wisdom. And so we have this. But we also have a third aspect to who we are. We say we have the body, we have the mind, and we have the soul or we have the spirit. And what the heck is that? <laughs> That's the one who's witnessing all of it. And so even if I asked you right now, and you can keep your eyes open, but turn your attention to who's listening to my voice. Okay, who's hearing me speak right now as I speak? Some of you maybe go, well, I am. Me. <laughs> well, who's me? I don't know. That's why I'm here. You're here to tell me who I am. <laughs> the soulful aspect of ourselves is the one that is just watching it all happen. And it's the same one that's been watching since the moment that you took the first breath in your life. And it'll be the same one that watches as you take the last breath in your life. And sometimes in that last breath in our life is where we feel the greatest sense of yoga or union. Because what begins to dissolve is all of the limitations and the barriers that we build up against ourselves and that connection, deeper connection to the body, deeper connection to the mind, and then ultimately a deeper connection to each other and to the earth. And so there was, um, we call him the father of yoga. So thousands of years ago, there was a man by the name of Patanjali. And Patanjali has written some pretty incredible texts that follow almost every single yoga teacher training out there, except that I would stand very confidently and courageously say, as I claim for myself too, just because we learn it here doesn't mean we practice it here or out here. And that's what I want to share with you today. Is he said that the practice of yoga to really feel truly in union like some of us may in that last breath in life is available to us throughout our entire life if we go through the process. And so he says that the outward most expression of who we are in yoga or in union is who we are in relationship to each other. Right? So I am a wife, I am a daughter, I am a sister, I am a mother, I am a business owner, I'm probably a lot of other things, I'm a friend, but that's how I really learn in a lot of ways about who I am is because I learned that in contrast or in relationship, right? So I wouldn't know that I was short until I met somebody that was tall, 
or taller than me. Or I wouldn't know if I was rich or if I was poor if I met somebody who was showing to me the opposite of that to be true. This is how we start to learn who we are. Now, the only problem is that while we stay in that outermost ring or that outermost layer of our beings, if we're constantly trying to figure out who we are in contrast and in comparison, then we get really stuck up on what or stuck on what that outward projection is and we forget what it is that we're to learn in that. And so Patanjali said that there's rules for relationship, there's rules for social conduct. And included in this are the rules around peace and peacefulness, truth and truthfulness, non-greediness and only taking what we need. But if we start there and we're trying to live by this golden rule of always treat others as you want to be treated and you don't even know who you are, then we keep trying to be these fixers outside of ourselves. And he says, that's not yoga. That's not yoga because it's a detached sense. It's only such a small fraction of you. He says, as we come closer to yoga, now we have to go from how we are conducting ourselves socially and in relationship to that next more finite layer, which is how I relate to myself. What is my own internal dialogue? And so the example I gave this morning is that you might see, let's say it's me running down the street on a Sunday morning going for a run, and you go, wow, you know, look at her. She's so committed to her exercise. And just for the record, I wasn't doing that, but <laughs> in the past. And she's so fit, and I wish that I was more like her and that. And yet, if you could look inside my head, my internal dialogue might be, oh, I feel so guilty for you know, drinking that extra glass of wine last night. Or, oh, I know this is going to be a big day of birthday parties and celebrations, and I need to just you know, burn off that cake before I eat it. Or, oh, God, I hate myself for you know, letting myself get out of shape or the way that I am. It's the part that people don't see. It's who you are when nobody is looking. And even within that, there's different, I don't want to say rules, but there's different sort of ways that we conduct ourselves. And a lot of this comes down to our truthfulness and our integrity. Is who are you when nobody is looking? And it's not that we're doing kind things just in case somebody finds out, but it's really for the purpose of our own evolution. Can I be my own best friend? Can I love not only the lightness to who I am, but can I love the darkness and the shadows? And can I understand that it's because of these aspects of who I am that continually push me to evolve and to grow? Right? So we almost learn within ourselves as well, by contrast, the same in relationship. And so then when we start to step back even further, the next layer that we move to, towards union, is this third layer, and in Sanskrit we call this asana. Okay, so asana simply translates to position or seat. So if you go to a yoga class, or you do a yoga posture, I'm sure most of us are familiar with something. When you ask somebody, what is yoga? Most people are going to do what? yoga is this <laughs> if you ask kids they always do tree pose for some reason what is meditation they always cross their legs and they put their fingers like this and they chant something we think what is yoga we think yoga is that third limb or that third aspect which is asana meaning cedar position you're all in asana right now you're all sitting in a certain cedar position but Patanjali said it doesn't stop there this is also the seats and the positions that you sit in in the rest of your life this is being a daughter or a son. This is being a mother or a father or a friend or a companion or a 
business owner, whatever you do. So in our layman um, terms, the layman language, we say we wear all these different hats. Right? There's all these different seats on the bus that we sit in, that every single one of those seats or every single one of those hats that we put on has a certain set of rules and responsibilities. And so for me, as let's say as a business owner, is that people expect me you know, to operate a certain way or I don't know, there's definitely things that I have to do, but in terms of attitude in the way that I show up, I might be the one cartwheeling through the office and I might be the one you know, blaring the music and dancing and sometimes people say, but you teach meditation. Why are you standing on top of the table and waving your arms all around and playing ACDC and this doesn't make any sense. And my kids will say the same thing to me, especially my teenage daughter. That's not a very mom thing to do, you know. Moms don't do handstands in the kitchen. <laughs> like, well, this mom does. <laughs> and she starts to take on more of that role. She says, sometimes I feel more like the mom. And I start to think, well, how the heck did you learn that? Because if we look at the June Cleaver version of what a mom should be, I've never been that mom. I've been responsible and I've provided a very safe and loving environment for my kids, but I'm definitely not the stay-at-home mom in the beautiful little dress and the pearls that always has everything perfect. I'm the mom that's like skidding in at <laughs> you know, 6.01, you know, trying to whip together a 10-minute dinner for my kids to go in all directions. And there's nothing wrong with that. And yet our society on the outside says this is how it should be. So even on that layer of showing up, in yoga, as we think yoga should be, is that we think we're doing it wrong. Right? That's why most of us don't even want to go to a yoga class. Well, it's because I'm not flexible. Well, that's why you go. <laughs> you go so that you can learn to be flexible in your body, but you learn so that you can be flexible in your mind. Right? And what we've begun to do is we've even turned our yoga practice into another critical judging, I'm not doing this right, experience of life. And hey, I know just as many people that say that they're yogis that are the most harsh and critical people that I've ever met in my life. You know, looking down saying, well, you're not a vegetarian. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, how do you feel about killing animals? <laughs> That's not very yoga. That's not what Patanjali would say. Patanjali would say that the choices that you make when you're sitting in those seats on the bus, the way that you choose to show up there in yoga would be to be an acceptance acceptance of yourself and acceptance of others that are sharing the bus with you as to how they may show up in what might look like the same title and the same role, but certainly may, may be very different on the operational aspect or the functional aspect of that. And so if we stop there and say, I'm a yogi, then we're missing the next four layers or steps. So when we go from these roles that I play and we slowly pull ourselves back, to be able to witness the roles that I play. The catalyst or the vehicle for that is the vehicle of the breath. That's why at the end of the yoga class, we all lay on our back in Shavasana and breathe. Or at the end of a long day, or if somebody walks into your office and shares something with you, or your daughter comes to you and says, Mom, I'm really overwhelmed, I need to talk to you. The natural instinct that we all have as human beings and as spiritual beings is to take a really big deep breath in. Let me think about that for a sec. What is the breath for? Well, 
the breath is doing one of two things. It's either creating a buffer and it's creating space so that we can kind of see everything out in front of us. Or in an overactive, fear-based, egoic and conditioned mind, that breath in creates the space and the momentum, but the breath out is a contraction and it prepares us to step right back out into that relationship because I need to fix you and I need to fix that. But what the soul and the spirit knows is that if I want to experience union, I need to use that exhale not to prepare myself to fight, but to be able to step even further back to really see what's going on here and to connect with whatever my deeper desires and intentions are in this moment. And so that's where we slowly start to pull back from with that breath. Taking 10 deep breaths, yes. We're not just taking 10 deep breaths unconsciously, we're taking 10 deep breaths consciously, knowing in the mind, creating that connection and all of those um, neurons that are firing that the purpose of this breath is so that I don't react or overreact. I need to ground back down again to who I am, to feeling grounded and in union. And so when we take those breaths and ah, now we have the space, this is where those deeper stages of meditation start to happen. The deeper connection to the I or to the self with the capital S, my self, the soul or the spirit. Because that next stage is where we start to consciously unplug one by one everything that we have plugged in. We're charging everybody else up. We're giving our energy away, not just to people, but also to circumstance. And what are we plugged in through? We're plugged in through our five senses. So giving your attention to everything that you're hearing, be it music or the construction outside, the sound of my voice, the sound of the person breathing beside you, right? The ego always wants to react, but we slowly start to pull that back and we just allow ourselves to witness the fact that there is sound that's happening, but it can just be vibration. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to put meaning to it. The second sense that we have that we're attached through is the sense of sight, what am I seeing? And again, we want to react or we want to respond based on, oh, that feels really good. I want to be a part of it. Or that doesn't feel really good. I want to fix it because that makes me feel unsafe and uncomfortable. And I need to get out of this place. And I need to jump back into life and I need to deal with it. It's the ability to even be able to pull that out. To either just witness with eyes open without responding. Or to close our eyes and to take that distraction away altogether. The third sense is the sense of feeling and sensation. Right? Sometimes we become very overattached to, oh, my clothes are too itchy, or this chair is too hard, or the air is too cold, or it's too hot. That too pulls us out. The next sense is the sense of smell. And the sense of smell is a really strong one because, yes, with all of our senses, but particularly smell, for every smell that you've ever smelled, it's a lot of smelling in one sentence. <laughs> There's a memory that's been stored somewhere within your DNA or the software of your body. And based on that, your body is going to like it or not like it. We don't always give our attention to this, but it's always happening. So the experience I used this morning was coming in here and you sit down and you instantly start to smell vanilla. Maybe it's the perfume of the person next to you or a candle that was burning. Now you have maybe very consciously, or maybe it's very subtle, you have an experience with the smell of vanilla. Maybe it was your grandmother, and she was super loving and nurturing, and every time you smell vanilla, you start to relax in your body. 
Or maybe it was the perfume of a friend or of a girlfriend that you know, things didn't end very well. <laughs> you, oh, I don't like that very much. Right? That sense of smell is so strong to the point where sometimes all we have to do is recall it without even smelling it again. But naturally we want to react or we want to respond. So we slowly pull that back as well. doesn't mean the smell is gone. It just means that every time we notice that we notice, we just let ourselves drift back. No, nope, not going to do anything about it. And the last is the sense of taste. And taste is always the last sense because it's so earthy and it's so dense. And so anything that you're tasting in your mouth at any given moment, any food is always going to trigger for us an emotion, an experience, a memory. And we pluck that one away as well. This practice is called pratyahara. It's withdrawing the senses slowly one by one, which is a very mindful process, so that now I can prepare myself to go even deeper into myself. And we do that through the last three stages, which are known as dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. And dharana, and it's interesting, and Martin's not in here right now, but I was watching him play the guitar, as I also saw this morning, at some points he took the one hand right off. I'm like, that's a, that is impressive, <laughs> and he's still plucking with the other hand. And I certainly can barely play a guitar. I think I can play three different chords with two hands, and I really have to stretch my fingers, and I have very long fingers. But what it reminded me of was one of the first times that I learned how to ride a bike with one hand as a kid, and then no hands. And it's, it's the learning in the beginning, the concentrating and the focusing to pull ourselves back that's hard. It's hard because the mind always wants to get back out into relationship and into the world. But the desire of the soul is to let go. It's to be happy and to be free. Every single one of us in here shares those two root desires, is happiness and freedom. And when we can allow ourselves to keep unplugging all of our attachments and to just focus on playing the instrument, maybe it's playing the breath, maybe it's reciting a mantra, whatever that is for you, eventually it becomes easy and you let go. And when we let go with eyes closed, there is such a rush and a sensation of freedom and of peace and of joy, of joy. And we don't only know this and we feel this, but this has been studied and researched. The serotonin that's released, the oxytocin that's released. It's the same as a lot of drug addicts that get addicted to heroin or opiates is there's a full sensation of freedom in every cell in the body. And the reason that we have that is because we lose what we call the object of meditation or the object of referral. Any attachment that we have in the world, we lose it. Maybe for a blip, for a brief second, maybe for a couple of minutes. We actually don't know. That's one of the biggest mysteries of consciousness is when you're in meditation and you dip all the way down into that gap. We don't know how long you're there. But what we do know that I don't normally talk about with my other meditation classes, and it's safe to talk here, is that you're not falling into a void. You're not falling into a state of nothingness, and you know maybe you don't have the thought and the attachments here, but you're falling to be caught and to be cradled by the greatest experience of divine connection and of creativity. This is where our insights and our inspirations come from. In fact, even the word inspiration comes from the Latin word inspiritus, which means to breathe spirit into our bodies. 
And as long as we're always an object referral, so I am comparing myself to you, or I'm comparing myself in my head, or even in my asana, is my leg right, or am I doing this right as a parent? I can't get there. It's impossible. I have to go through that practice of closing my eyes, of withdrawing my senses so that I can learn or reconnect, should I say, to who I am. The other parts are aspects and they're a part of who I am and it's really important. And as Patanjali said, he said, this journey isn't about going from the outermost expression of who you are, finding your place in stillness and staying there. That's not what this is about. This is about finding out who you are and your connection to whatever your divine life force or that supportive force is and how important you are in that connection and then offering that when you step back out into the world. And sometimes as we start to do that, it's not really easy. <laughs> Especially if you've done it over a very condensed period of time in a retreat, let's say, or you take a weekend away and then you come back out into the world and everything seems even more in contrast. You go, ah, no, as I start to pluck away or pull away all the parts, parts that aren't me, I think there's a Beatles song about that, slowly unbecoming who I thought that I was to become who I'm really meant to be, is that the parts that weren't really working to begin with, that were causing the friction and the fixing, now all of a sudden they start to shed almost like the snake of a skin. The snake of a skin, the skin of a snake. Start to shed like the skin of a snake. And we allow ourselves to grow through that. The only work at that point is telling the mind that we don't need to hold on to this skin and keep trying to fit it on and put it on. It's no, that's good, that's done, that served its purpose. Now I can continue to become more and more of who I am. And this is why we call this practice of yoga which is that true union that we find in that last and final state of samadhi. We call this a practice because you do it once, you feel euphoric, everything feels wonderful, and then you go all the way back out into life and a day later or two days later, it's hard again. So we dip back down <laughs> and then we come back up and every single day, and this is the way that you know, my teacher Deepak explained to me as he says, it's like this beautiful, I'm gonna find somebody with a very floral top on today. And I see you in the beautiful red dress with this floral top. Is it's all been dyed and it's been mixed and, and woven by your experiences that you've had in your life and this optical illusion that we exist in. But every single day you go down to the river, you dip it down and you hold it up to the sun bring it back out into the light, you dip it down into the stillness, you hold it up to the light. Every single time we do that, it fades a little by a little by a little until eventually we have this beautiful cloth that still holds um, remnants or imprints of who we are or experiences of who we are, right? That even move if we give those organs to somebody else that travels with somebody else, right? Or if you subscribe to the idea of reincarnation, then obviously this soul still holds some of those memories and those beliefs and we take it to the next body. But as an imprint, not as an attachment, not as a seeing that this is the only way that it is, is that as I allow myself to be not quite so distracted by the colorfulness that is the most outer experience of who I am, I can stay open. And there's more light that starts to come in. Patanjali says, this is the process of enlightenment. 
Because every time you go down into what might feel like the dark, you realize that there's even more light there. And as we come out, it's like God gives us a bigger flashlight. <laughs> now we can see even more in the room that we didn't see before. And then he said, we're asked from that place to understand and to have patience with others that can't see what we can see. And it's not right or wrong or this path isn't linear that you know, we're ahead of them or we're behind them. It's just to have patience and to have peace that we need to continue to show up in honesty and integrity. And that was Gandhi that said, as you learn more about the truth of who you are, with that truth comes great responsibility. And that responsibility is to act that way, to be that way. We are the only species besides monkeys that learns by watching. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't always matter what you're teaching. It matters how you are and how you're being. And it's through that that we continue to create union with ourselves on a daily basis, but also with others in a much more truthful way. And so that is Patanjali said, and as I'm so excited to share with you today, that is yoga. Yoga is learning who you are in samadhi or in some of those quieter places and then showing up just like that as you plug back into the world. So you are all yogis now, right? Yes, we understand that we're yogis. Yes, every single one of us, even if you've never popped any type of pose in your life. Sometimes those are the best yogis are the ones that just live from the heart every day. So thank you for coming. Thank you for being a yogi and for continuing to be that and to shine so brightly in the world. Namaste. Thank you.